Amen. Man, I could sing that one all day. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and grab them and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be picking it up here this morning. We're in Ephesians 1, still in Ephesians 1. If you've been with us uh, for the last few weeks, you know we're taking this in some pretty small, pretty small steps here, but we're going to be picking it up there this morning in verse 11. And, and what we're going to do, I know, I know this is quick to try and get, your, get yourself there, but uh, we're just going to jump in this morning. So if you're willing and able, would you just stand with me as we come together uh, before the word of the Lord, both hoping and expecting uh, to hear from him today. That's, that's what we're doing. This is Ephesians chapter 1, starting there in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we just sang, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. Lord, Lord may that be true of us. Lord, I pray that we don't sing as liars. <laughs> and so I pray that you'd speak to us now. Uh, I pray that you would come and do what only you can do, that you would speak to deaf ears, that you would speak to and, and be so, so present that blind eyes could not miss you. And Lord, that you would awaken us this morning. I pray that you speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I am not throwing away my shot. Wait for it. I'll never be satisfied. History has its eyes on you. You have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Some of you are with me. And others of you are like, what in the world has happened to this man? It started raining and now he's just spilling random lines. These are all themes. These, these, these words, these little phrases, are all themes or motifs um, from the Broadway. I mean, I guess at this point we have to call it like a phenomenon, right? The Broadway phenomenon that is Hamilton. And in each movement of the drama, we see these recurring motifs at work. They, they pop up throughout the entirety of, of the musical. They're what hold it together. And so it doesn't, they hold it together so the thing doesn't just spiral out of control and honestly die the death of like a thousand rabbit trails. But, but they're the tendons that keep that organism together. They're, they're flexible, but they're ever present throughout the musical, right? And in a similar way, the opening Verses of Ephesians 1 uh, share some common themes that run throughout the various movements of, of verses 3 through 14. And some have compared this to like a symphony. The, the first movement, so I'm, I'm giving a little bit of review, but the first movement in Ephesians 1 is found there in verses 3 through 6 in what we might call uh, the plan of redemption by the Father, right? That's that first sort of theme there, first motif of, of of what's happening here. It's his sacred, sovereign election of, of what Peter's going to call a people for his own 
possession. The second movement found in verses 7 through 10 might be called the accomplishment of redemption by the Son. Right? It's the explicit proclamation of, of what we call the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for, for lost and helpless sinners. And, and then the third movement, here's the third one. It's what we see today. is what we might call the seal of redemption by the Holy Spirit, right? So we have this incredible picture here in these first verses, this incredible picture of the work of the one God in three persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see each person of the Trinity at work here in Ephesians 3 through 14. And the primary motif that runs throughout all the movements is this redemption. That's the word. It's this redemption and the primary response, all right? So that's the, that's the motif. That's the theme. That's what we're supposed to keep picking up on. And the primary response is that of praise. In this third movement, we see the continuing work of God's grace in the lives of his people, and especially the work of the Spirit and sealing his people into the life of Christ, sealing God's chosen people into that redemption that was purchased by Jesus. And what's happening here, like if we take, <clears throat> if we take it within the context in which we find it, of this like opening, it's this huge long run-on sentence that's taking place here in 3 through 14, what we see is that Paul, like growing more and more in awe of what God has done for his children, growing more and more in awe of what he has done for us as he's, as he's retelling the wondrous works of Jesus. He's growing in appreciation for the grace of God that is lavished upon us. And he brings us to the work of the Spirit in the life of the church. That's what we find here in this third movement. Sinclair Ferguson makes a statement that Ephesians 1.11 may be the strongest and most comprehensive statement about God's absolute sovereignty in the whole of the Bible of God's absolute sovereignty. And he's right. If you look there at verse 11, look at 11 with me. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is a summary restatement of much of of what has come before it. And we can understand why Paul tends to get a little repetitive, right? Because, because we repeat the things that captivate us, right? We, we do this. This is why, like, I don't, maybe y'all's kids didn't do this. If you don't have kids, you just prepare your heart. But one day, your kid is going to tell you about his birthday party 12 months out of the year. Like, he'll have a different theme. He's like, I think I want to have a Batman birthday party. Or I think I want to have, a, I think I have a, a Frankie's Fun Park birthday party. Or can we go to the gym and do, like, just a gymnastics birthday party? Can we do, like, it happens all the time. All the time right? And I want this for my birthday, and I'd like to have this for my birthday. By the time we get to the actual birthday, the list of things for the birthday is so long, it's impossible to complete the thing. So you just have to constantly kind of forget. That's really your only hope. That's why a newly engaged woman cannot wait to show off the new piece of jewelry on her finger. That's why when women get pregnant, they start doing this. I want everybody to know there's a life form growing in here. A beautiful child to be born. It's because it's captivating, right? These things are exciting and they're mesmerizing. We talk about the things that we're captivated by. That's what we see from Paul when he starts talking about the grace 
of God. He's got this very like childlike wonder about him. There's this sort of delight that stirs up in us when we consider the lavish grace of God. And what it really brings him back to is this, is this dynamic and intentional activity of God in the world today. And, and, and what this does it, is it flies in the face, really, <clears throat> of both ancient and modern traditions that tend to see God as this sort of passive and and really disconnected, sort of, sort of grandpa in the sky looking down from the heavens, but not really involved. It's this view that would say that if there is a God, and, and if there is a God, like, like he certainly isn't interested in what we're doing. But, but what Paul is emphasizing here, like contrary to that, which is a very popular idea, what he's emphasizing here is that God is more than just sovereign. He's also involved. He's more than just sovereign. He's also active. It's that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we, we see this activity, right? We see his involvement. Like even as we hear the rain today pummeling our roof, which by the way, if you haven't prayed yet that that would stay outside of this building, you don't know our building, all right? You need to be praying actively as this is happening that we don't all get wet. Like that's just part of life in a very young church meeting in a former book warehouse. Like there's a good chance if you get dropped on, just kind of shake it off and we're going to power through this. All right, I need you to work with me on that. That he works all things according to the counsel as well. Even the rain that's dropping on the roof today is proof that God is in control. That he is continuing to nurture, continuing to provide for his earth. We see this involvement. It isn't some sort of back room, like hidden mechanism at work. God's not hiding from us. And it's not just an interest, right? He's not far off from his creation, but he's here. Like he's present. He's working even now. The word there for work in verse 11, it's, it's a fun Greek word called, uh, it's, it's the word energeo, right? Energeo, which is where we get the word energy. Energy means activity. That's what it means. And he's not just working some things, right? Look back at 11. We want to make sure we get this. It says that he works what? All things according to the counsel of his will. Another, another translation you might have on your lap there is that he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So one more time on that. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And in some ways, that translation almost, almost better captures the reality that the broken world is resistant to renewal, right? Like that, that, that a broken world is inherently non-conforming to the purpose and plan of God. That broken people, let's be careful that we don't look at the world and go, yeah, the world's broken. No, okay, broken people, okay, apart from the work of God, are actually resistant to reconciliation. We fight off redemption, we're like the little deer. You ever seen the video of like the little deer who's getting stuck, his head stuck in a fence or something? And like the farmer comes along and I don't understand why the farmer's first thought is let's get out the camera and videotape this, but I'm kind of grateful they do because it works as an illustration, right? And so the deer is like got his head stuck through the fence and whatever, his ears are too big to get it back out the other way. And so he's like fighting like crazy. And so the farmer comes up to try and help him. If, if you've ever seen this, the deer doesn't just like go, oh, thank you, right? It like fights, against all odds to stay in the fence. Like he's trying to free itself, but every movement just gets himself more and more and more stuck. And there's someone there trying to help it, but it can't release. It can't surrender. 
That's kind of how we are. We're just afraid of being saved. We're afraid of giving up whatever little bit of figment of control we're still holding on to. And if we could just surrender, right? If we could just be still, we could be set free. But instead, in our weakness, and our foolishness, and our fear, and, and our doubt, even in our pride, we fight against it. That's why verse 11 is such good news. I know it's not, a, it's not a traditional gospel verse, right? It's not one of those you memorize as the way of sharing the gospel, but it is so packed with good news for us because it reminds us again that it is God who's working all things according to the counsel of his will and not ours. And as we look at these few verses, what we see is that one of God's primary desires for his people, part of the counsel of his will, and, and one of the primary works of the Spirit of God, is in taking what used to be separated, taking what used to be broken and fractured, and bringing them together. That, that starts in salvation. That's the primary way. That's what reconciliation is. That's what redemption is, is being brought back into communion with God. So it starts there, but it also continues in the church. And so it's not that Paul is like oblivious to the different ethnic, cultural, and social divides that exist in the world. I want, I want to be really clear on that. In fact, I think it's very interesting that the way Paul talks about unity is by pointing out the diversity that's there in the church. I want you to notice that. Notice that in verses 11 and 12. He uses very specific, what we're going to call we language, right? He says that in him, we have obtained an inheritance so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. If we aren't careful, we'll just sort of gloss over that. We're kind of used to we language. Most of us have been on a team at some point. We've got that sort of mentality. And, and, and we've read, a lot of us have read through Ephesians enough time to kind of get that, that Paul's talking about one church here. But we have to be careful, all right? And there's something worth understanding. And it's a, simple, it's a simple and profound thing that's happening here. It, what Paul is making very clear, and, and, and I mean, again, it's so simple, but it's so profound, is that God sees you. Right? Like God sees you. He sees, where, he sees you where you are. He sees you how you are. He, like, he understands the complex emotions that stir up in your heart. He understands the weight of, of different cultural and social expectations that sit in the, back of your, in the back of your mind. He understands family and relationship dynamics, both the good and the bad, that impact every decision that you make. Listen, I want you to hear this. God sees you. He sees you. The fact that the Bible understands the reality of the different factions, and specifically, specifically here in Ephesians, the emphasis is on as we're going to see in this passage, is on different ethnicities. It tells us a lot about how God sees his created world. And Paul owns his particular pathway to the Lord. In his commentary on this passage, Tony Morita makes the point that in these verses, Paul is stressing God's sovereign plan in the ordering of salvation history. Sometimes, sometimes we call it redemptive history. It's the covenantal thread that runs throughout Throughout the Bible, as God enters into covenant with flawed and fragile people. And we see it in Genesis, right? We did Genesis last year. We saw in Genesis, as God enters into covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all flawed, all broken. There are some depressing chapters in the book of Genesis. Some of y'all remember those. Like Those were some hard weeks as we walked through that book because we see our, ourselves reflected so, so clearly. 
We see it in Exodus with Moses and the offspring of Israel where God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. We see it in 2 Samuel 7 where where God promises David that your throne will be established forever. These are covenant promises from God. We see it in Jeremiah 31 where God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. He says that he is going to put my law within them and and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And and then, so that's Old Testament. Then Jesus comes, right? Jesus comes and it's John the Baptist crying out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus calls these, if you remember, it's very specific. He calls these Jewish disciples. And they have diverse backgrounds, right? They have diverse stories. They have diverse careers, different families, but they have a shared heritage. They have a shared origin story rooted in the line of God's covenant people. It was the people of Israel who were, who were the first to hope in Christ. That's who Paul's talking about here in verses 11 and 12. They were the ones looking for the Messiah. the Jewish people looking for a Messiah. They were anticipating his arrival. But you know what happens, right? When Jesus showed up, most of them missed him. Like Paul missed him. Too blinded by his and their expectations for a political Messiah. Paul missed the suffering, suffering servant. He, he missed the Lamb of God dying on the cross. He missed him until that resurrected Lamb came and met him on the street outside of Damascus, right? And Paul, a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that's who God chose to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That wasn't Paul's choice. It might not have been his preference, but it was his commission. God makes that clear in Acts 9 when he tells a guy called Ananias. Do you remember this scene? He shows up and blinds Paul on the street. His friends have to like carry him off the street. And then God comes to this guy named Ananias. <laughs> he tells Paul to go and lay his hands on Paul to restore his sight. And Ananias wasn't really feeling it at all. I mean, just to be perfectly straight, he's like, he's blind? Might be a good time to take him out. You know, like this could be, a, could be an opportunity He's like, Lord, I've heard of this guy. I've heard of this guy. He's all, and it's all bad news. That's, that's a paraphrase, by the way. That's not, you're not going to find that in there. But God tells Ananias this. This isn't a paraphrase. This is right from his mouth. He said, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. He says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Which tells us a lot about life and service to a crucified king. And so Paul goes as God's chosen instrument, right? He goes to where? He goes to Galatia. He goes to Philippi. He goes to Colossae. He goes to Corinth. And yes, he goes to Ephesus. He goes to the most pagan city. I think the argument could be made that that Ephesus is actually more pagan than Rome, but let's just... He went to both of them. He goes with the message of the gospel. And he makes this confession. Here's what he says. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. That's the you of verses 13 and 14. I want you to look at that with me. In verses 13 and 14, he says this, In him you also... 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Don't forget that. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Ian Hamilton makes the point that the dimension of the Holy Spirit of promise emphasizes the new covenant dimension of the gospel. Is he much like our world today, right? The world of the Ephesians was, was sort of diametrically divided. There were all sorts of lines of separation, some ethnic, some cultural. And that was even true within the church. Now, that happens within the church. Different expectations, different rhythms, different patterns. This happens within the church. Like we might all be relatively similar in appearance, but we have all sorts of different backgrounds. And so like today, the sinful, broken people are all sorts of prone to division. But it's into this divided world. We can't forget this. It's into that divided world. Even into the divided church that the gospel goes forward with this, this sort of reconciling power of the Holy Spirit. It's like a boat cutting through the water, right? And it leaves this wake behind it. Wherever it goes, the wake goes, goes behind it. So the gospel moves through the divides of the world, cutting through the dividing walls of society and leaving restoration and leaving authentic community in its wake. And, and the proof of it, I want you to look at it again, is in the shared inheritance. Look at, look at it again. Notice how in verse 11, it's we have obtained an inheritance. But here in 14, what does it say? It's the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Paul's going to say later in Ephesians 4 that there is one body and there is one spirit. So, so, so what he's getting at and what God wants us to receive here today is that there aren't any second class citizens in the kingdom of God, right? Like there aren't any unloved sons at the table of the Lord. There's nobody who sneaks in. There's nobody who just happened to get through by the skin of their teeth. There's one inheritance for God's people. And that inheritance, right? The inheritance that the children of God have received. It's the Son of God. And like it really is just that simple. Like I want it. Something in me wants it to be more complicated. I don't, I don't know why that is. But can Jesus really be the answer to what is the inheritance? It's his life. His life is our inheritance, right? That, that's why Peter is going to write that according to his great mercy, here's 1 Peter, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. There's that word again, right? This is thematic in the, in the New Testament. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Look, Jesus is our inheritance. He, like he is, I'll, I'll steal from Keller. He is the true and better inheritance from the Lord, right? Having been raised from the dead, he is imperishable. Having been sinless, he is undefiled. Being eternal, he is unfading, right? He is our living hope. And, and we all, like Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, poor and rich, black and white, strong and weak, tall and short, young and old, light-skinned, dark-skinned, now we all, in Christ, right, share in this one inheritance. He's taken what used to be two and he's made it one. And so yes, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There are only sons and daughters. There are only his children. There are only his offspring. This is what Paul's proclaiming here. 
as he looks back at what God has done in the church, and he sees this incredible and impossible, the impossible ways that God has redeemed us in Christ and reconciled us to one another. Look at what it rolls up into. And again, this is something that's, that's, that I want to say is just so lacking in so much of Christian, Christian life today. All of it, all that Christ has done is to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. That's the motif that runs through the lives of the redeemed. That we are his. That we are one together in Christ. And that we are all, every single one of us, to the praise of his glory. That's what our redemption in Jesus reminds us. There's a passage in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And, it, and it's clear that they, like, like, like us, they, they struggled to remember who they were in Christ. Like they had constant sort of spiritual identity crisis. They struggled to remember that. They wrestled with the reality of their new creation identity in Him. And, and Paul says to them, here's, here's what Paul says to the church in Philippi. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And he says this. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The 19th century Scottish pastor, uh, Robert Murray McShane, used to say that for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. That's one of those like sticky note quotes. It's probably a good one. Put like on your bathroom mirror as you're literally looking at yourself. But perhaps the reason so much of the church fails so often in true worship and praise is because we fail too often to look to Jesus. There's a line in Psalm 40 where David is reflecting on his own salvation. And I'll I'll close with this. He, He says this. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And then verse 3 says this. It says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. May we be a people of praise. Like, may we learn and love that new song of Christ. May, may that new song spill over and out of, out of us as a testimony to who he is and what he has done. May the theme of that song be our Savior. May the praise of our Savior be the tendons that hold our lives together. Wherever we are, may we look to Jesus. And, and may the world come to know him in our singing. We need to take We need to take stock every once in a while of what it is that our lives are praising. We need to be really careful. And y'all, I know we're about to, I think the countdown is we're in within two weeks of college football. And I know some of you and I love you. And I'm just telling you, don't let that be your Jesus. Uh, If you're a Carolina fan, you are doomed, right? (laughs) Like it would just, it'll go so bad, so quick for us. Um, We are long suffering in that. Like genuinely, I thought that when, anyway, I better not go there. No, seriously. When when David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, I literally thought, come on, God. We need you. 
The city needs you to make something happen here for it. No, that's obviously a lie. Be careful what your lives praise. And be careful what the testimony of your heart is to a watching world. The promise there from God is that the new song is going to be there. The other promise is that when it's sung, the world will see, they will fear the Lord, which is another way of saying they'll stand in awe of God. And they'll put their trust in the Lord. Maybe the reason we see very few confessions of faith in our circles of friends is because we fail to praise the Lord that we would dare tell them is here to save them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we've heard today, and it's been almost thematic, though completely unplanned throughout our service, Lord, you've given us a new song to sing. Even as Patrick and Abigail were sharing about the stones crying out in our place. I, as he was talking about the, the singing sand dune, I found myself thinking of Isaiah 55, where you say, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Lord, you say you're going to make your people as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the sky. Perhaps it's not the actual mountains that cry out. Perhaps it's not the actual stars that begin to sing and the trees that start clapping. Perhaps it's that the number of your disciples, the number of your redeemed children will be so great that there will not be a spot on earth where they cannot hear your praise. Lord, I wish that was true of us. That's my prayer. Work that in our lives, Lord. Bring us closer to you. Maybe we'd be captivated by you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and join us in responding in song?